Well, all year we're working through the gospel according to John in this series we're calling Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And uh, as we begin here, I just want to tell you a little story. So it wasn't too long ago that I was having a really hard time in my life. And I, this isn't confession time. I'm not going to tell you all the details of what was going on. But I wasn't handling it very well. Can you believe that? A pastor, right? Well, I wasn't. And no one could see it more clearly than my wife, Holly. And now Holly and I were married when we were pretty young. And so we've had a lot of growing up to do together over the years. And it hasn't always been pretty. In fact, it never is, let's be honest. Immaturity is always painful. But when I was just deep down in this dark valley and feeling pretty bad for myself and about myself, right, wallowing in self-pity, Holly could have responded to me with judgment and condemnation or at least a cold shoulder. But instead, she told me, it's okay, I'm not going anywhere, we'll figure this out. Now it was her grace, her love for me in that moment that made me want to run up out of that valley. Now, not everyone is called to be married this message about the love of Christ is not an early Valentine's Day message. <laughs> and not everyone who gets married stays married for a variety of reasons. But every single one of us was created to enjoy this type of love. Love from God. Love for one another here within the church. And today we're finishing John chapter 13. And we're considering this great love of Christ and his call to us, his disciples, his people, to love one another just as he has loved us. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please open it to John chapter 13, starting with verse 18. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. But friends, you got to know where in the Bible this is located. So please open and go to John chapter 13, starting with verse 18. We'll read through this and we'll unpack it together as we go. Verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill my, this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Okay, let's pause here. Not the most logical passage to preach on the love of God and the love of for one another, right? Okay, we'll get to that part, all right? It's important that we go through this section of, of Scripture. Okay, so, little context. Last week, we started chapter, this, in chapter 13, we started this long section in John's Gospel focusing on the events and the teachings of the night before the cross of Christ. 
And this includes the story last week of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, demonstrating the humble service that Jesus called his disciples to do for one another. But this night also included the Last Supper, and then one of the longest sections of teaching, the teachings of Jesus, known as the Upper Room Discourse. John chapters, the end of chapter 13, all the way through 17. But it also includes this sad story of the betrayal of Jesus by one of his friends, Judas. Now Jesus knows this will happen. He isn't surprised by this betrayal, but it still hurts. John says that he was troubled in spirit. Now if you knew one of your friends, someone that you had spent years of your life with, would sell you to your enemies, how would you feel about that? But Jesus says that this tragic choice of Judas was all part of the plan. He says that this was to fulfill a verse from Psalm chapter 41. And this was a psalm of the ancient King David. And one where some sort of illness had, had threatened David's life while his enemies prowled around him celebrating his, what they hoped, impending death. Even one of David's close friends, one who had shared his bread, had turned against him. But David was confident that God would raise him up and he would enjoy life in God's presence forever. So Jesus says this psalm and this event in King David's life was like a sign pointing forward a thousand years into the future to Jesus and his enemies who had prowled, were prowling around him, hoping to celebrate his impending death when one of his close friends turned against him. So Jesus tells the twelve why, why he is telling them this. He says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. Now the NIV adds who I am because that is a more natural way to say that. But throughout John's gospel, we've seen, we will see seven different times Jesus uses the statement I am to point to his divinity. So in the shock, in the disorientation of the death of Jesus, he warns his disciples ahead of time so that they will not completely lose faith, so that they would still believe, that they would still trust in him, even in the darkness of the cross. Now, as we said last week, even though Jesus was about to face the very next day the ultimate pain and shame of the cross, and even though his death and his resurrection would forever change the course, not only of human history, but of the history of the creation, Jesus was not only thinking about himself and what he would do and what he would feel, but he was still thinking about his disciples. He was still looking out for them and helping them to prepare them for what they would face in the next 72 hours and beyond. This is why Jesus says, very truly, I tell you. Remember in John's gospel, that means pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. 
Even in the shadow of the cross, Jesus starts to move to what the disciples will need to remember after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension back into heaven, when he would commission, when he would send them. Bearing the message of who he was, of who I am, to the ends of the earth. And much of the upper room discourse focuses on this as well. But imagine if you saw Jesus become troubled in spirit. And imagine if then you heard him say that one of you was going to betray him. What did this even mean? Who? How? Was there something we should be doing right now? Why are we sitting here? We see the response of the disciples in the next section. So we'll continue with verse 22. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now John's final statement here was probably a memory that it was night. But also, in John, light and darkness play a major theme. So this is also a theological judgment. Judas was lost. The light of the world was sitting next to him. He was in the dark. But upon hearing that one of them would betray Jesus, they started looking at each other. He's talking about me? Peter, <laughs> imagine how you would feel. Uh, what? Peter's like, John, ask him. <laughs> See, ask him who it is. So John uh, must have been sitting next to Jesus, and as they, they would have been reclining around a low table, uh, which would have been common in their day for special occasions, like, like the Passover meal and feasts such as that. And so reclining next to Jesus, John asked Jesus, and, and Jesus must have answered quietly because some of the disciples were confused. They didn't understand where Judas was going. Uh, now, we don't know for sure, but the fact that Jesus gave Judas this piece of bread uh, possibly meant that Judas was sitting right next to Jesus on the other side. So, perhaps John, the beloved disciple, is on one side of Jesus and Judas, the betrayer, on the other. Some commentators said that the seat to the left of Jesus would have been a place of honor. Interesting. Well, the fact that Jesus offered this choice piece of bread to Judas himself from his own hand 
when Judas was perhaps sitting in a place of honor, but at least sitting at the table with Jesus, is remarkable. It's just as remarkable as the fact that Jesus had just washed Judas's feet, knowing that he would betray him. Again, Jesus didn't just tell us to love our enemies. He modeled it. He lived Proverbs 25, 21, which says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Commentator Don Carson writes, Judas received the bread, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened his resolve. So it is here that Judas fully gives himself over to the darkness. John wrote earlier in chapter 13 that Judas was tempted by the devil, but here he says that he is embodied by Satan himself, the adversary. What a tragedy. It was Judas who would share the bread of Jesus, but would turn against him. It was Judas who Psalm 41 pointed to as well. It was Judas who would not go out, not to serve the poor, but to serve himself at the cost of his friend's life. But now that Judas was gone, Jesus would give the remaining faithful, albeit confused still, 11, what they needed to hear on the night before the cross. So let's continue with verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. Well, it's a serious passage. We start with a betrayal and we end with a prophetic disownment. But it's here, after Judas departs, that the upper room discourse begins. And as I said, runs through the end of chapter 17. And and here, Jesus says that he will be glorified immediately, at once. And that God would be glorified in him as well. How would this be? Well, because where Jesus is going, meaning his death, burial, resurrection, and 
eventual ascension back into heaven, his disciples would not immediately be able to follow. And so to prepare for his departure, King Jesus gives us a new command. But is this really a new command? You know, in one sense, it's nothing new. The command to love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, both of these were already firmly on the books. Love was widely understood by devout Jewish men and women as the greatest commandment and as the highest calling for people created by a loving God. But the kind of love that Jesus was commanding, now that was new. And the reason is because it was based on him. If you take notes in your Bible, I'd like you to underline verse 34. Underline love one another. Okay? But then, circle, as I have loved you. Because in this simple statement, Jesus changes everything. His disciples, his followers, his servants, his friends are called to love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples? We know how Jesus loved his disciples. Because of the Gospels. Because of the record of the eyewitnesses who were there, who received his love. And so we're called to love one another just as Jesus washed his disciples' feet in humble service on the night before his own death, including Judas. Remember? We're called to love one another just as he offered Judas the bread. And I think one more chance to repent and believe. We're called to love just as Jesus would give up his life on the cross for the sins of the world. Not his sins. He was without sin. But for us, we're called to love just as Jesus spent years of his life selflessly working with teaching, healing, mentoring, leading, giving to all of the people around him. We're called to love just as Jesus was patient and kind but truthful with Peter when he told Peter, when he knew that Peter would deny him three times in just a few short hours. We're called to love just as Jesus was willing to forgive and restore Peter, as we'll see at the end of John's Gospel after his resurrection. And on and on and on. We could find 10,000 different ways that Jesus loved his disciples and served to serve as a model for how we are to love. But more, this type of cross-shaped love wasn't only for what we were called to do and what we are called to do. It was to become the defining marker of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Nothing is more important to Jesus regarding his people, regarding his church, than our love for one another. Nothing. The Apostle Paul would later famously write, 
a passage which we regularly read at weddings, but in the context was, had nothing to do with weddings directly. He wrote, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now as a church, it doesn't matter how good our preaching is or how nice our facilities are or how powerful our worship is or how many ministries we offer to this community. It would and will all be worthless if we fail to love one another as Jesus loved us. But cross-shaped love is not easy. It's a costly love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that puts the needs of others ahead of our own rights, our own opinions, our own preferences. It's a love that is faithful even when it's hard, even when life is hard, even when relationships are hard. It's a love that has the courage to speak the truth even if the truth is unpopular. So today, how might we apply this teaching to our lives? Well, since the command of Jesus, I believe, is just so clear, and is just he modeled it, this costly cross-shaped love so evidently, I don't think we need much help in understanding what Jesus means by this command. But it's hard to do. So instead, I'd like to help you think through what prevents us from doing this, from obeying this simple command. Now, I've said it for years, and I've proved it myself <laughs> in my marriage, in my life, maybe with some of you too. Loving people is the hardest thing in the, all the world to do. Of course, it's the best thing to do, but love can be so difficult, even for a mature believer. One little insulting comment or insinuation and we want to call down fire from heaven. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> well, maybe I'm a th son of thunder, too. Well, what are the barriers that make it difficult for us to love one another just as Jesus loved us? Well, I'll give you just two today. Just two. The first barrier is sin. The closer that you get to, one, to another imperfect person, the more evidence that you'll have, be able to have to hold against them in the court of law. And they'll have against you. The more time that you spend with people on this side of eternity, before perfection and glory, the more opportunities that people have, like Judas or like Peter, to sin against you. Now, this is the natural way of this broken world. But this is also sadly true at times within the church. Time plus sinful people usually equals hurt. And I know that some of you have been deeply wounded by other Christians. 
and I'm so sorry. I know that it grieves God's heart when his children hurt one another, just as it would grieve my heart for my kids to hurt one another. But also, this is why Jesus spent so much time talking about repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. The amount of time Jesus spends talking about these things is incredible compared to other things. He doesn't talk about murder nearly as often as he does about forgiveness. As Christians, we know that God has forgiven all of our sins because of his forgiving love and the power of the cross of Christ. If we believe this, then we must be people who are willing to repent and to forgive when sin enters into our relationships. But if we have the faith and the courage to do this, then our repentance and our forgiveness can often build back a bridge of love. As the Apostle Peter, who's about to sin and be forgiven, as he wrote years later, above all, friends, nothing is more important than this. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. What do you think he thought of when he wrote those words? You will deny me three times, Peter. Well, the second barrier to love is the fact that people are weird. We are all weird people in many ways, okay? This isn't a sin thing. This is just a people thing. And it's because of many things. And I've, I've tried to understand this for a long time now, okay? Because everybody's weird except for you, right? It's, it's kind of our perspective. What are these weirdos doing, right? And they're thinking the same about you. All right, this is because... God has made, he loves all kinds of things, okay? He makes this universe teeming with all sorts of stuff, including different types of people. Now, people have different personalities. They have different experiences. They have different biases. They have, we have different strengths and weaknesses. And therefore, people see the world very differently than you. And when two opposing perspectives comes together, come together, it's natural to see the other one as maybe ignorant at best and your enemy at worst. But fighting with each other in the church, whether it be over politics, oh boy, what a year, 2024, <laughs> or ministry preferences, or over doctrinal issues, or over cultural hot topics, or all the other things we like to argue about, these divisions will convince no one that we are followers of Jesus. Now, of course, it's appropriate to have discussions and even disagreements over big, important things, especially when there might be multiple right answers. And, and this requires careful discernment, discussion. We still might land in two different camps over certain issues, but we cannot under any circumstances, withdraw our love for one another, even if we have significant disagreements with one another over these things. We must learn to disagree without being disagreeable. Now, of course, if this sounds hard, you're starting to get it. You're starting to see what Jesus is calling you into. 
But it's the only way that is good. It is only, the only way that is right. It is the only way that is beautiful. It's the only way of Jesus. Do you remember how John began chapter 13? With this beautiful statement. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. He knew it was time. He knew it was the time for the cross. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the way. And if we follow him, this is our way. As individuals and as a church, may we love like this to the end, faithfully, sacrificially, humbly. And may our love for one another be the defining marker of this church. And in doing so, bring glory and honor to our King. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you have demonstrated in myriad ways the cross-shaped, costly love that you are commanding us to do and follow. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, when we fail to love. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, when we are divided over things that don't matter, or at least don't matter as much as your love for us. And help us, Lord, by your Spirit, for we cannot do this without you. We cannot love in this way unless we see that you have first loved us. We will not unless we first believe it. But Lord, I pray that this church, over the course of the time, over the course of time, and I know it's not going to be perfect, but Lord, would you draw us, would you empower us to be a beacon of your love out into the world around us, into this city, into this community, into the lives of people who are desperate in need for an experience of your love. We pray all these things in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.